three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play a recording from our March 17th live salon, during which we celebrated the beginning of our 18th year of podcasting. Since the salon actually began in a live format about four years before then, however, I thought that, well, it's about time to tell the story of our first few years before podcasting was invented. And to be honest, I wasn't all that excited about this salon going into it because, well, I already knew the story and it's the stories and comments of the rest of the people who drop by that make these conversations so interesting for me. But since three of the four of us who began these salons are no longer with us, I thought that, uh, well, it might be a good idea to tell you the story now. Imagine my surprise then when, after I told my story and our conversation began to flow in a few different directions, that we were treated with quite a surprise. Now, since the beginning of the pandemic, two of our regulars in the live salons, Rio and Ildico, were stranded in Morocco when the borders were closed, and it was over a year and a half before they were able to return to the States. Now, if you've been with us in some of the live salons, then you know about their adventures during that time, which included a heart attack, broken feet, coming down with COVID more than once, and, (laughs) well, those are only the first things that come to mind. So I didn't think that Rio had any more surprises for me. After all, I've known him for over 20 years, and we've had a few adventures together ourselves, although none of them were as adventuresome as most of Rio's other escapades. And while I never assumed that I knew about all of his adventures, I at least thought that, well, I knew of the major headlines. However, it wasn't until this live salon that I learned, for the very first time, that, and on more than one occasion, Rio did acid with Dr. Hoffman the man who actually invented the LSD molecule. Here's a recording of that March 17th salon. I I thought I would give this little tale today. And the reason is today is, of course, March 17th. And in 2005 on this date, I gave uh, the first podcast. Uh, So this is the first day of our 18th year of podcasting. But the salon actually began five years earlier, not quite four and a half years earlier. And uh, it began with... Three of us who met in Palenque, and uh, for the salon, when it actually started, there were four of us. But there's two reasons I want to do this today, uh, besides it being the anniversary day. It's of the three people, of the four of us who are were original saloners, three of them are dead. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I've got to get this story out before the fourth one goes. And it also happens to be uh, Wild Bill's birthday. Uh, Bill died in November of 2020, one of the first of the pandemics in New York. I've been wanting to do a, a you know, a memorial for Bill, but uh, I haven't been able to do it, quite frankly. You know, in the last couple of years, uh, I, I don't know, I stopped counting after a, a dozen, but I've had over a dozen friends and relatives die in the last two years. And Bill was the one that hit me the hardest because, you know, he's younger, or was younger than me. And, and uh, you know, I could always, you know, hardly a, a few weeks would go by, I wouldn't pick up the phone and be Bill say, hey, Lorenzo, what's going on? And you know, he was such a part of my regular routine that uh, it's it's been a big hole and I can't quite address it yet. So eventually I'll get uh, around to doing a memorial about him. But so this is sort of a, to remember Bill on his birthday because he was one of the original four people, a part of the salon. 
And as I said a few minutes ago, the story isn't really that exciting, but it's uh, the reason I think it's important is because, uh, well, of the four people, two of them are me and Nick Sand, who people know about, but the other two aren't really widely known. And and really, that's, in my opinion, the heart of the psychedelic community is the, the thousands of us out there, you know, just doing everyday things, not getting up on a platform and all like that. So it's really uh, more a story about uh, behind the scenes scene, behind the scenes people who really make up the psychedelic community. Now, three of us met in Palenque at the Entheobotany Conference. And uh, at the time, there was this <laughs> big rebellion going down in the Chiapas. And uh, my my uh, friend of mine at work traveled down there with me. And, you know, we were a couple of guys in our 50s. And, and uh, <laughs> we thought we were going into a, a battle area in the Chiapas and all. And we get down to the resort in Palenque. And and, you know, it's like heaven. It's just uh, everybody has a little cabin. It's around a pool. And you know, it's really amazing thing. And, and, you know, we kept looking at each other that first afternoon and evening like, wow, we were crazy and being afraid to come down here. This is amazing. Look at these people. And so we got to got to know a few of the people that first uh, afternoon and evening. And, you know, everybody had their meals in uh, in in uh, the family style. We it, we took over this whole resort. There were uh a hundred people, right at a hundred people. And I think uh, almost 20 of them were presenters, but uh, uh, everybody ate together, all the presenters. So we, we ate with Sasha and Terrence and, and all those people, uh, you know, Paul Stamets was there and, and uh, many of the others. So it was a, a real community feeling. And, and we started, uh, you know, kind of getting into uh, the whole thing. And, and uh, of course, we want to know about the people who were there. And rumors started spreading, you know, first thing you do, you start looking to see who the narc is, because <laughs> half of us were afraid that there were narcs there. Uh, but after that first morning lecture, the, the lectures were up in the top of a hill. It was kind of a climb to get up there. And then after the lecture, <clears throat> everybody comes down to, you know, we had an hour or so before lunch and <clears throat> most people were hanging around the pool. So uh, I go down uh, to the, down the hill and, and, uh, kind of looking over the scene and I see a whole bunch of people down by the pool on the far side. So I walked down there and uh, right sitting on the edge of the pool with, with their feet in the water was this uh, older gentleman who I learned later had been uh, the director of the uh, Harvard libraries. And uh, he left there to become the director of the New York city public library and had just retired. And he was having his very first MDMA experience. And I thought, wow, you know, just sitting out here in this great, atmosphere and all and and there was this woman who was helping him and I, I and she wasn't she didn't take any she was just you know a sitter and uh he was nervous he'd never done it before and so she was helping along I thought my goodness you know a woman spends all this time and money to come down to the seminar and then takes take the afternoon off to help somebody on their first MDMA trip I thought you know I need to get to know her and uh we've been married 22 years now so that was an interesting <laughs> first meeting although I didn't meet her that day but there was only one chair left down by the pool and it happened to be next to Bill. And, you know, I was kind of leery because, you know, we knew we I'd heard the night before that uh, well, the word was he was a New York City cop. But uh, it turns out he was a parole officer and uh, he looked kind of rough, hadn't shaved in a day or so, had a bleach blonde crew cut. <laughs> and I thought, oh, boy, I don't know. And and but that was the only chair next to him. So uh, he said, hey, have a seat. And I sat down and. Before I could kind of get my wits about me, he turned and he handed me a pipe and a lighter and said, you want some hash? 
And I knew right there that uh, as they, they, uh, they said in the, in the movies, uh, this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Well, uh, over the years, I've done uh, eight podcasts that uh, Bill is involved, uh, was part of, uh, notably during the Occupy movement. He was, uh, even though he had to walk with a cane and had retired from the police force, he marched with the people on Brooklyn Bridge, and uh, he was very active in that. But uh, the, if you want to know something about Bill before I finally get around to doing the memorial, uh, so a podcast from Swan 2 podcast number 19 Lex Pelger did a really good interview with Bill, and so you can uh, catch up more about him there. But as I said, he was a, a New York City parole officer, and uh, he, he actually had turned on to LSD when he was with the Army in Berlin. Uh, and one of the things he got in trouble with his uh, superiors at a police force about is uh, in all his time as a parole officer, he never once busted a parolee for a pot violation. <laughs> and he also, uh, when I met him at Palenque, he, he introduced me to uh, what he called uh, holy shit. Now, how many people do you know back into the 90s that were into edibles? Well, Bill created this edible as a peanut butter edible. And now that we know about, uh, you know, we've had in the salons talking about how to prepare cannabis and cook it at a low temperature and all. Well, Bill was doing that and he learned how to do it just by trial and error. And he made this most powerful peanut butter, uh, holy shit. (laughs) He handed it out to everybody down there and that's uh, he taught me how to make it. But the other person I met down there, I've never talked about him here in the salon. And uh, now that he is no longer with us, I I feel uh, I, I at least need to make sure people know about the importance of this man. I first saw him a couple of days after I met Bill, and uh, as I've told the story before, I, Christian Rash was giving a uh, lecture down by the pool. I'd taken some acid, and, and uh, <laughs> the only reason I did that, I hadn't found acid in like two or three years, and some was, I found some down there. So uh, I decided, heck with the lecture, I'm going uh, <laughs> to trip. And uh, Sasha came up there and saw me tripping, and we got to talking, and while the lecture is going on for about an hour or so, Sasha and I just talked about our experiences in the Navy. Uh, we had both been uh, young seamen on aboard uh, destroyers in the Pacific, or I was in the Pacific, he was in the Atlantic, but it was during wartime. And we exchanged stories about life on the ship in the Navy during the war. So, uh, uh, you know, I really felt like I got to know him, although we'd been corresponding for several years before that. In fact, we'd been corresponding since 86. So, uh, uh, you know, it was the first time I'd had a personal interchange with him. And as a result, uh, while I was sitting there, when the conference ended, uh, the whole bunch of people came up and I got my I got to see how designer drugs were actually conceived. Because uh, when when Dr. Tom got up there, uh, as soon as Sasha called, saw him, he called him right over and he says, hey, I was talking to so and so. And this was a guy who is a he's an MD and he was doing some kind of research. And they were talking about uh, snorting, <laughs> snorting drugs. And uh, Sasha wanted to know, uh, Sasha and, and Dr. Tom talked about how can you make it less caustic for your nose? And they're talking about how to move, you know, molecule or atoms around. And yeah, I didn't understand a word they're saying, but they got really talking like mechanics, plugging things in and all. And, uh, I should point out, though, that that uh, Dr. Tom, like he, I said, he had a history similar to Sasha's. He uh, he was a generation and a half or so younger than Sasha, and he he uh, worked for a major chemical company and came up with a, a, chemi- a chemical that they patented and made a ton of money on. 
And uh, he didn't get a, a big bonus. I think he got 10 grand or something and they made millions, but uh, they rewarded him with a private lab. Same thing had happened to Sasha. I, I can't remember who he was working for, but he did the same thing, got a private lab. And now I'm thinking about it, you know, basically they, they give him a private lab. It's, it's like a, uh, it's like putting a alcoholic in charge of a liquor store. You know, all Tom wanted to do was make new chemicals. And so he kept working there for years after he should have left, but uh, he, he made stuff for us in his private lab. He never sold anything. As far as I know, Tom never made a profit selling anything. But uh, he he shared his uh, information with a whole range of underground chemists. And so when we came back to Palenque the next year, he uh, had created a new form of 2CB that was snortable without uh, completely destroying your, your <laughs> nose. A couple nights after we first got there that year, two or three dozen of us got together down in Tom's room. And uh, he had a whole assembly line uh, where we got in line and, and he would you know, put out a couple lines to snort. But first you had to snort a little cocaine to deaden your, your nose a little bit, but then you could snort 2CB directly. And <laughs> that's the only time I've ever done it. But I'll tell you something that if you can imagine uh, MDMA or 2CB coming on in 30 seconds, full blown, uh, it's an, it's a really interesting experience. And, and uh, if some of those people were uh, if all those people were dead by now, I'd tell you the stories of that night because they were really wild. <laughs> right now, I have to live a little longer. Okay, so that's the picture of Palenque. We come back from Palenque, and uh, at the time, I was working with Bruce Damer <clears throat> on a uh, project called Talkspace. Now, this is before Vonage and Skype, and, and we had this project that was, uh, you know, Online, over, over the internet, uh, it was just audio. It was just like audio phone, but it was like Zoom, like right now without a picture. But we had a delay from the time I would say something till you would respond. It was like, uh, a tenth to a twentieth of a second delay, which was just a pain. You know, we just couldn't deal with that. So we kept trying to fix it. And while we were trying to fix it, Vonage and Skype both got <laughs> ahead of us. So, uh, it, it, uh, it, it never uh, matured or materialized for us. However, uh, we were in a testing mode at the time. And so I decided to test it with Bill and Tom simply because it was encrypted with a really high degree of encryption. I, I don't know if there's any uh, secure communications with that encryption today yet. Uh, and, and so it was a little slow, but uh, it was very secure. So we could talk about drugs. And so Bill and Tom and I started on regular Wednesdays you know, just having these little conversations and, and we could talk about anything we wanted to because we knew nobody's listening in. And after uh, you know, a little while in the summer of uh, 2001, I uh, I got the URL psychedelicsalon.com. So there we are. It's the summer of 2001. We're having these conversations online and Bill had just gotten back. He was somewhere where he, he and Nick were together and they were obviously partying. And uh, Bill came back and he says, hey, Nick tells me about this stuff called Lamid. Uh, do you know how to make it? And Tom says, well, I know a little bit about it, but, you know, I'd have to talk to Nick to find out. And so <laughs> we invited Nick to the salon and uh, to the three of us. And that was really when the salon was born is when Nick joined us and uh, we uh Learned, or Tom learned how to formulate Lamid, and uh, he made a bunch for us, and we conducted a bunch of Lamid tests, and uh, they were pretty spectacular. Just a headline is that uh, 
after 15 days in a row, taking 50 micrograms at 10 a.m. every day for 15 days in a row, on the 15th day, that 50 mics was just as whopping a, a big acid trip as you can imagine, and it ended in four hours. So that's that's the, the story on Lamed. Now, uh, we kept getting together for a while, but shortly after that, 9-11 occurred and uh, podcasting appeared. And so the the uh, salon, did, you know, changed from a in-person salon to the talks, you know, pub, you know, podcasting all the talks. But now, thanks to the uh, pandemic, uh, we've come seem to come full circle and <laughs> we're back to having these conversations online. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, how we came to be together today. Now, the point of the story is these four guys were just sitting, getting together, bullshitting about drugs. Okay. As a result of that, 18, 17 years later, over 30 million people have listened to at least one of these podcasts from just four guys, just bullshitting about drugs. So don't underestimate the power of what you can do. If you just keep pushing the story out there and that's all I have to say. (laughs) Happy anniversary and happy birthday to wild bill. it's, It's all our anniversary. (laughs) <laughs> Not just mine. Without you, it wouldn't be here. <laughs> I wouldn't be celebrating. I'd be celebrating St. Patrick's Day instead. But fortunately, I've outgrown that. That's a great story. Anyhow, so uh, that's that's the story of how you came to be here today. <laughs> the creation story. By the way, that point about LSD being for the elite, that came from Albert. That was his original take and why he had such a, a falling out with Tim Leary. Toward the end of his life, did he come around and see that Tim did play a very key role? Yeah, actually, uh, you know, they, they had a pretty uh, cantankerous uh, relationship, if they even had one. But uh, at the, I know in the last uh, couple of years of Albert's life, he did say how uh, he, he sees where Leary actually did some positive things as well and, and uh, uh, you know, saw it in hindsight in the bigger picture. But, uh, you, you know, there, there was a, a big, uh, you know, the, the big research in LSD was actually being done by the CIA at that time, you know, so uh, with MK Ultra, You know, it was, it was a time every bit as strange as we're in right now, I think. Well, and Oscar Yaniger was responsible for a significant amount of research and uh, dissemination. Uh, Oscar, you know, turned on a good deal of the of major stars in Hollywood and uh, <clears throat> all of that, and did his famous um, experiments with the Kachina doll, where he had uh, artists draw or paint the Kachina doll uh, before taking LSD and then while on LSD. There's a whole collection there, which I think is in the position possession of his sons right now. Yeah. They, they, all of those paintings are still there. Uh, I know somebody has just recently seen some of that stuff. And so uh, for those that don't know, uh, I think you can see some of it online. I've seen pictures of it. I don't know where they came, they, they've come from but uh uh it's really amazing uh the the drawings you know some of them before they had lsd were like you know 
camera ready art almost you know you know re, real reproductions but their art was so much better after lsd you know it became more contemporary so uh it, it's a fascinating thing and i hope that eventually uh that series of paintings could get uh you know published you know they're they're uh it's a valuable collection actually you know some of those people were became famous artists hey i have a question for rio and lorenzo and, and eugenia you guys were acquainted with people like oscar um you know people like myron uh people like like um um god why am i blanking on 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 bicycle day guy hoffman um you were acquainted with them and you were acquainted with them in the period of time where this was a very disreputable field to be interested in and so what were what was their attitude when you were working when you were talking to them both about younger folks like you coming to them uh for for their insights but also what kept them in the community and maintaining an interest in what had become a very taboo subject uh well speaking both to albert and to oscar um i mean it, well albert believed that it truly was uh, the, as he put it, the medicine par excellence for the Occidental mind. And uh, it was, of course, a major part of his life's work. And I think it wasn't some... It, uh, Albert B, was part mystic, and that really came to, uh, you know, blossom under the effects of LSD. And I think he also understood historically... Uh, the importance of it. And uh, so I never saw in Albert there was any question of continuing it. This was a life work uh, for him, and he understood that it was a major breakthrough for humanity. Um, I think in a, in a way, Oscar was the same. I mean, he pursued his work as a psychiatrist all through his life up until the very end. And, uh, you know, he celebrated the fact that what had maybe taken him 20 years of therapy with someone he could do with one pill in a, a few hour session. Um, so I don't think that I mean, both of them had a passion for it. And Albert's the one who introduced me to Oz. And he said, you know, this man has the most amazing library uh, in the world. And it's when. Albert came to L.A. Uh, for that one conference somewhere I have the T-shirt from here. And uh, so I, I don't know if that addresses your your point, Charles. But... It addresses the question. And were they were they forthcoming? I mean, how did they vet that, you know, you weren't just some nut? And, you know, it's like because you had to be they had to have been very careful because there were a bunch of seekers many of whom were unbalanced. There are a bunch of narcs. There was a lot of heat. So, you know, to what extent did they, were they forthcoming? And to what extent did they, you know, have to have to be cautious? And, and how, how long did it take to kind of get them to open up and be um, in that state with you where you could be communing with that, with that knowledge and with that respect for the, for the practices? I don't know. With both of them, it was kind of immediate. A little bit uh, like Lorenzo described, you know, the, the beginnings of a great friendship. 
uh, I think there was kind of an immediate recognition that uh, I was serious. I wasn't, you know, CIA in disguise or something. Uh, I suppose it helped that I did have a background in chemistry, so I could talk from a certain place about the substances that um, in both cases, I, yeah, I, I'd have to go back in detail, but I believe it was before or not uh, very long after my Amazon expedition. I knew Schultes, so I kind of knew a lot of people in the community. So they saw that. I think they recognized that. It was like somehow a real a real connection. I mean, I was... I, I wasn't there for any alternative, alternative purpose, you know, or ulterior motive. I wasn't like trying to write a story about them or something, um, but had a very strong personal interest. And in both cases, they allowed me to do video recordings, which are somewhere in my archive, and I hope to get out and hope they're still viewable. Um, because we had long, long discussions. And in much, in, you know, in certain cases, we did that intentionally on video. That's wonderful. You know, it, it may uh, have depended uh, uh, in, in some instances on how we met these people. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, Myron's one introduced me to, to Oscar. And so, so I was already kind of in the tribe, you know. It's it's not like uh, they they knew I was not going to think they were crazy or anything like that or breaking the law. That that Myron actually went to his his death believing and and I agree with him that the psychedelic medicines are the most important advance in human history. That that it, you know a, a future depends on it. And he never wavered on that for an, an instant. Uh, he always felt he was doing the most important work possible that he could have done. Uh, but I got to know Myron at, at, in a, a really safe environment for him. It was a, uh, invitation only conference that was, uh, a bunch of psychiatrists and healers and, uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, it was, a, I've talked about it before. It was up in Canada, an island up there, and it's a very secure, private little place. And I wound up, my, my room was, had on one side was Myron and Gene Stolaroff, and on the other side was Duncan and Jane Blewett. And so I got to know Duncan Blewett and Myron Stolaroff, you know, sitting around in the evenings in their room smoking dope. You know, Myron didn't, but Duncan and Jane did. And, you know, so I got to know them on a very casual, you know, place, a safe, a safe environment where everybody there was psychedelic, you know, and uh, so they just accepted me as not an outsider, I guess. I never really thought about it. it it's, uh, but I never, never sensed in, in uh, Myron or, or Oscar or Gary or any of those people, any sense of regret or sense that they did anything other than the, the most pristine thing they could have done. You know, so uh, they, they were really purist in what they did, I think. Wow. And, and I would say to second all of that, in the case of uh, Albert and Oscar, they both felt, you know, that the way things had gone and making LSD research illegal was, you know, on the other side of the aisle could be, from their point of view, could be considered a crime toward the evolution of humanity and scientific uh, research. 
that it was really tragedy. Um, yeah, people don't realize this, but before LSD became illegal in the United States, there were over 3,000 papers published about the effectiveness and research papers and all. It was very widely studied in outside of MK Ultra for a long time. Yeah, for sure. The 50s rhyme with the present moment <clears throat> with regard to the research uh, dynamics and the and the quest for panacea. Hey, Eugenio, what, what book are you holding up? What's the name of that? LSD, Spirituality, and the Creative Process. Thank you. That has a bunch of the images from the Kachina Project in it that look fantastic. LSD, Spirituality, and the Creative Process. Let's see which of us nabs it on Abe Books first, me or Rich. (laughs) Sorry to derail you guys. Those stories are fascinating. (laughs) What was Hoffman like, Rio? Give me one second here. I'm just notating it. Oh, wait. Are we all looking for that fucking book right now? (laughs) What's happening? I've got my library. (laughs) God damn it. You're going to make me go on on the search during the salon? That's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Albert was a very serious person. Um, He uh, was relatively quiet but very impassioned person you know he's kind of quiet and soft-spoken but with a real emotional force and he understood situation of uh, politically uh, i remember taking a walk out back from his house through the forest and then pointing out that he was right on the border of switzerland and france and so if uh, they ever came after him, he could just walk across the border. But he, he yeah, I'd say he, while not, he, he was not a like person who would get out and have like a party type of atmosphere about him, though he enjoyed hanging out and being at parties, especially with the conferences, uh, some of the private and some not-so-private conferences, especially in Europe, as I can remember with Christian Roch. I don't know if uh, many of you know him, but um, he was one of Albert's major students and written in psychoactive plants and many other things. And, uh, I can just remember one time with he and Albert at a conference uh, in Europe and everyone tripping together. Um, but Albert still always had this very serious demeanor, but serious in the sense that this was a sacred substance, that it was something that you really had to approach in a very serious way. Uh, that's why he and, and Leary split, because he felt that uh, it was for the elite, at least I would say the elite of, in a mindset, uh, you know, that it wasn't just to be taken frivol- frivolously or a recreational drug or something, that it was a very serious substance that was changing the world, had the potential to change the world, change humanity, and certainly a complete new breakthrough in the world of psychology and psychiatry and uh, 
healing of mental disorders. So if I could ask you to back up a second, you just said, you know, at the private conferences, everybody was tripping together, if I heard you correctly. Does, does, this, does this mean that you tripped with Albert Hoffman? Oh, yeah. Wow. Now, now what was that like? Well, it was the, the one that's coming to mind right now was at an after party. And I don't know, maybe 20 people were there. Not everybody at the conference, but, you know, select people. And it was a very uh, relaxed scene. Uh, people just sort of, you know, I can remember laid out on the floor talking, relaxing together, just having a very personal interactions, um, you know, and, and exploring together the discussions about substances, their effects, so on and so forth. Um, and also his sort of another aspect of his character was almost a childlike curiosity in the world. He, uh, I remember him describing in some detail, and I think it's in some of his books, um, you know, discovering the world anew and the original things that he saw on his original LSD trips was because he lived in a beautiful place uh, in Basel up on it. And in the back was this forest and he thoroughly enjoyed and I think it was one of the first things that he really connected with was the connection with nature when he came home and, and uh, you know, had his experience. He was also very physically fit. He had a swimming pool in his house so he could swim all year round. As being Switzerland, of course, in the winter, it'd be very, very cold. Um, and of course, Albert was a European gentleman at the same time. So he had that whole tradition. I really saw him in the tradition of Paracelsus <laughs> and the alchemists. And <laughs> he recognized that also in himself. And he had sort of the outlook and the grasp on life of a mystic. I mean, here was one of the finest chemists that had ever lived. And he had that whole other side to him. I mean, he must have understood himself to be as revolutionary in his way as Jung was in his. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And, to, and to be one of the rare people to be like a, a real peer of Jung down to geographically. Yes. Yes. And taking things way beyond any other, uh, you know, researcher, Jung or whoever you would choose without having intended to do that. I mean, I, I think Albert stands as one of the most interesting people in history because, you know, he went back and synthesized LSD-25, which had been put on the shelf because it lacked any biological activity in animals. And, you know, so he, he broke a taboo or maybe even a laboratory rule um, at Sandoz anyway by doing that and then by accident got a little bit on his hands which again for Albert being the level of chemist that he was is itself extraordinary it was and that's why I say there was this mystic side of him to one go back and 
take it off the shelf and synthesize it again, and then two to get some on him. It just goes way beyond any logic. Mm-hmm. He, he was being led somehow, if you will, or following his intuition, whatever you, however you want to describe it. But you know, clearly a manifestation of that uh, mystic side of him, and of course that transformed humanity. And I, I would agree. I think it's one of the most important discoveries in the history of humanity. And so two, 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 two question, two questions about him. One. Was there a humility in his character? Absolutely. Albert was a very uh, humble man. And, and the second, when, when you had, and, and I loved how you said, um, well, let me see which time I want to talk about, suggesting that there's multiple Albert Hoffman trips there, which is, a, you know, I mean, a single one is, you know, a holy grail experience for a particular kind of psychonaut. Um, but when you were in these environments and, you know, Albert is in the medicine along with others. Um, was there a sense that people were peers or was there a sense of we are in the presence of the founder? No, from it was a sense of peers from him. Now, I can't describe, you know, what was going on in other people. Obviously, a, a lot of people there probably did feel, you know, hey, I'm in the presence of this God, from some people's point of view, um, but from Albert, no, he was very humble. Everyone he met, he treated as an equal. Um, you know, unless they became, you know, he would kind of distance himself if they didn't have that real quality of sincerity and humble interest in. That uh, yeah, he he was treated people on an equal level this raises a new dimension of his um distaste for leary hearing you describe him in that way because leary was so outwardly on a guru trip now i don't know what leary was like in private when you trip with him and i've read a number of accounts from a number of different people but you know there was always this sense at least when you read about leary of this um you know, I got here first or this kind of hierarchy trip. And again, I don't know that that's what he's, what he was like, but hearing you describe Hoffman's character is so different from Leary's character that it, it, it makes a great deal of sense why there would have been that disdain. Well, I think the disdain on Albert's part came uh, in large part from the fact that Leary turned on the general public and created I think Albert, to a certain extent, blamed Leary for the uh, crackdown on LSD and other psychoactive substance research because he took it out of these small, serious circles of uh, research. And, you know, therefore, a backlash occurred within uh, general society, especially in the U.S., And as we know, especially in those days, whatever the U.S. did in terms of drug policy, everybody else followed. Uh, Every other country went along. So I think that was part of it. I will say some of my experiences with Tim, uh, and one in particular comes to mind because I did a portrait of him 
uh, one night, it was about 2 a.m., we were sitting having uh, what I consider to be a very philosophical discussion, uh, sitting before a Keith Herring table in his kitchen, and I did a, a completely different portrait of Tim than you will see anywhere else. He didn't have that big, wild smile on his face at all. It, it was really, I call it Tim as the philosopher. And uh, so it, in those private moments, it was only he and I there at the house. I was staying with him as I usually did after, um, you know, or when I couldn't stay at Oz's. Uh, and having these late night discussions, um, as opposed to his more public persona, where, you know, he was the Pied Piper of LSD. It seems like there was some recording on, or some recording where Timothy said uh, that he was what the public kind of made him. And so the whole public thing and going public and being kind of like really loud and outrageous about it, I think is the difference between how I feel about my dad. It was part of more of the beatniks than he was of the deadheads or the, say the the movements um, as and and like we should have the freedom to do LSD kind of really a little more pronounced than I. It seems to me like Hoffman was more um, subdued about it. Maybe not to. Not, I don't, I mean, it seems like just from recordings that I've heard that he's not closed about, he's not being private about um, experiencing the LSD, but he, he doesn't go about it. Uh, he goes more gentleman, gentleman like about it than um, the whole movement and the, and the revolution and, you know, um, the hippie movement is what I want to say. And I hate categorizing like that or deadheads and, um, there is, there was a difference. There was a little break in that little tiny era in between that I, I experienced most of my dad's friends that were extremely like, more like uh, Hoffman or um, Huxley. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, so you have to put Albert in his context, which was, he was a very sophisticated European gentleman and maintained a sphere of influence, his friends, um, you know, his whole lifestyle was around, that was the structure and of course of, of his experience. I think in some ways I agree with you that Leary became, took on the role that society kind of drove, in a way drove him to. I mean, I think being thrown out of Harvard, uh, having been already before the discovery of LSD, one of the most important uh, modern psychiatrists, psychologists, I'm not sure he was a psychiatrist ever, but a psychologist. I mean, he revolutionized psychology. And shortly before his death, he was recognized for that uh, by the Los Angeles Psychology Society. I don't know the formal name of it. Uh, but they did have a formal recognition evening for him. Um, so I think there were two factors there that uh, he recognized the possibilities and truly, you know, life changing and the ability to change other people's lives uh, that LSD offered and the other uh, substances, psilocybin uh, and the others. Um, and then he did take on this role. And of course, uh, you know, it all flowed from there, but uh, 
and it was a different time. It's also, if you want to make the comparison, what we're kind of doing here, the difference between an American in American society at the time when it was a revolutionary uh, event happening, world historical, which maybe we'll never see again, um, moment in history, and Albert, who was in the context of sophisticated, very serious uh, European culture. That's a good observation. And there's also the generational observation of, you know, Albert was born in 1906. And so he, his psychology really would have been defined by World War One. And, you know, Tim was born, I think, uh, what, like 17, 18, something like that. So his psychology would have been defined by the Second World War. And, you know, and America versus Europe, etc. But, you know, it's really interesting how, you know, they, they come out of their respective zeitgeist at the time where they were kind of each needed within their cultural zeitgeist. And responded to, yeah, what was going on in different ways, of course. Yeah. You know, another little picture I have of, of uh, Albert Hoffman as a, a real human being, neat guy, is uh, <clears throat> uh, before I met Mary C., uh, she was at a conference over in Amsterdam, and at the uh, Saturday night of the conference, they had a rave after uh, later that night, and uh, Albert Hoffman showed up at the rave, and uh, one of the women got him out on the dance floor, and uh, so Mary C. and about six other women got to dance all at the same time with Albert Hoffman, but he danced, she said, for a, quite a long time for, you know, I don't know how old he was then, but uh, he was probably older than I am right now, so, you know, he could be a man of the people as well, and uh, uh, Rio, you mentioned uh, Christian Rasch, uh, uh, Christian once told me that that he considered Albert Hoffman his his uh, mentor, and he actually thought of Albert as his father almost. So uh, what what I find ironic about that is how staid and and a gentlemanly Oscar or uh, Albert was, <laughs> and Christian uh, Christian party uh, he made the Grateful Dead look like school Sunday school teachers. Christian could party hardier than any human being I've ever met. <laughs> and the two poles of, of that relationship are kind of fascinating. <laughs> well, that pursuit of Dionysian ecstasy is, is something that they don't really talk about in the in the annals of serious psychedelia. So it's good that you have that those stories. And, and I'm not saying he took MDMA. I'm just saying they had a, had a rave and he danced at it. <laughs> Yes. Well, he he did something. <laughs> yes, if, he did. If, he, if he make the Grateful Dead look like schoolboys, that's a bold statement, and you know what that <laughs> statement means, and so do we. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's interesting about Christian because I basically consider Albert to be like my spiritual father, mm. uh, and you know that came out of the the relationship as it developed and. Uh, went on for years and Christian um, he's to me just a wonderful guy I mean beyond wonderful amazing yeah. person uh, we really got to know each other during uh, when I was in Tucson during the Biosphere 2 project uh, because he was supporting himself his business was coming to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show and buying fossils for museums in Europe. 
and he was quite an expert in it. We're talking, you know, I can't buy a dinosaur the size of a house, and then, you know, it would be shipped back to Europe or something. So it was a very serious enterprise he was involved in. And then at some point, I don't know if he ran, had a direct run-in with the law or he just became concerned. I don't remember exactly, but he didn't want to come back into the United States. Uh, so that cut him out of a lot that was going on and more focus toward Europe. And then in 2000, I think, one uh, or so, we had a... A shaman conference in Adulakil in Nepal, which he organized. Christian uh, did? With Nepalese shaman. I'm sorry? Christian organized this conference? Yes. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah. And again, I have hours of video. He agreed. Uh, and, you know, I pretty much videoed the entire conference. Again, those are tapes in the library that. Uh, Maybe somebody would get interested in helping me with because these are all big projects um, have to be done in real time. Uh, but Christian, and as you say, uh, Lorenzo, he could really party. <laughs> I, there was no way I could even see. He was so far ahead of me, I couldn't even see where he was going. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, of course, that happened at the Palenque conferences. Where, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I recall uh, being totally overdosed, and I think it was Christian who gave it to me on 2CI there in Palenque. Um, you know, if, if we were all researchers, I was going to say, if we were all researchers and scientists, we'd be talking about molecules right now. Instead, we're talking about experiences. I think that's the difference here. Well, we could talk about molecules as well. <laughs> but but it seems like our number one topic is what the molecules do to us. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sounds like their number one topic was knowing what the molecule was doing and being able to personify the molecule in its experience. And and use it in a serious uh way. To, uh, as a tool, they, they both saw it that way. And of course, Look who just showed up! I'm sorry. The Ian is here. <laughs> so Ian and Siva don't realize that we're on daylight savings time now. Wait, what happened? <laughs> You're late. Like an hour late, huh? Yep. Yeah, like an hour late. <laughs> yeah, you you miss you miss you miss hearing about Rio tripping with um, with Albert no! Hoffman and Tim no! Leary. Yeah, and you well. miss Lorenzo's story of the beginning of the uh, psychedelic salon. You're going to post this though, right? I'm thinking about it, but I, not as a podcast. I'll put it up in in uh, Patreon and and okay. find a way to get you to it. Okay, good. Yes, yes, please. Uh, I'm not going to ask what I missed. You missed one of the greatest trip stories I've ever heard about Rio and, and oh. Albert Hoffman. Yeah. <laughs> How many people do you know that tripped with Albert Hoffman? Uh, I, I, I don't. <laughs> now you do. Nice. 
I thought it was a big deal because I smoked dope with Joe Rogan and, and uh, did ayahuasca with Sting. But, you know, you know Hoffman acid trip trumps them all. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's quite a claim to fame, my friends. And also, it speaks so well of your character, Rio, that you've been coming for, what, a year and a half, two years to these salons, and not once did this come up. It had to kind of come out, you know, in conversation. You know, you're not you're not dropping your calling card on the table as your psychedelic bona fides. It speaks very, very well of you. Charles, I've known Rio for over 20 years, and this is the first time I've heard that story. <laughs> I'd be telling it to everybody I've met. <laughs> yeah, that Dos Equis guy's got nothing on you. <laughs> well, I think, you know, Rio shared a lot of these these amazing experiences with the with with the forebears, and you shared your amazing experience of how the psychedelic salon came to be. But I also know that, you know, part of your whole journey within the psychedelic salon was being, you know, I can't tell whether you were a scholar or a fanboy or both in spending a lot of time with, with folks, um, you know, like Myron and Jean and Sasha. So, you know, as, as Rio was talking about his experiences with these folks, you know, what were some of the things that really made an impression on you as you were somebody that was just kind of building connections within this community about, about some of these figures and their, and their traits? Well, all of this started before I was podcasting. And so, you know, I, 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 I was just getting to know people. You know, it, it's a, more of a friendly get to know you. I had no intention or idea that I'd ever be talking to anybody else about it. I just thought, well, this is my own personal interest. And Myron's a really cool guy. And I love going up there and staying with him. And uh, it, it never, even when I was doing those recordings of him, I was doing it. I, I'm not really sure why I was doing it. I didn't realize that. I just assumed there were hundreds of hours of recordings of Myron Stolaroff. I, I, you know, I didn't know any better. And so had I known better, I, I might've done a better job, but uh, I, I wasn't really thinking this far ahead. I wasn't even thinking other than just the weekend being with him and hearing more stories and learning stuff. And I, I was just collecting it for my own benefit, I guess. I, I there's no plan. <laughs> and what was it, what was it in your character in, like Myron, for instance, he's somebody that you got to know. Like, at what point does it did it become a core? For, did it move from being a cordial? Here's a younger person who's interested in my work. To yeah, come out to Lone Pine and have some research chemicals with me. It, it started up at, at that conference up in in uh, Canada where we were essentially living next door to each other. And I don't know. I said a couple things that Myron just got fascinated at how reckless I was with my drug use I think and he couldn't believe some of the stupid things I did and just he was just fascinated that I was as crazy as I was I guess and I didn't think I was but you know I didn't have any mentors didn't have any guides and so maybe he just wanted to take care of me I'm not sure <laughs> but we we just became friends somehow and I guess you would have been in your 40s or early 50s at that point I, I was uh mid 50s uh-huh and he must have been late 70s, about the age I am now. Well, it must have been extraordinary for a guy like that with his history to hear a guy in his mid-50s talking about drug habits that belonged to somebody in college. <laughs> yeah, he, he had, uh, you know, he had his own milieu that they were, you know, people his age, ones that worked on P-Call and T-Call. And I don't think he hung around younger people. I don't consider myself a younger person, but relative to him, I was. So, uh 
And, and I, I didn't come in through the 60s. I, I was, you know, in my 40s when I first had my experience. And so I was a curiosity to him, too, I think. I think uh, Lorenzo hit on a point is that, you know, it's one thing to look back on these experiences that we had. Uh, so you have a different point of view. But at the time, it somehow it was very natural. Uh, within that milieu and what was going on and it was all very new and there were some people who were of course taking it uh, in the let's say more hippie you know rave direction and there were other people who were doing you know curious and serious research or just you know trying to find their way in this new world um, and as well as the people who were directly involved, say like Albert, uh, like Myron, who were Oscar, you know, it was all new for them too. So it was a different kind of milieu uh, to be doing that in. Whereas now we look back from this point of view of the Renaissance of psychedelics and the whole history of it up till this point, going through the stage now to the semi-legal, at least open to research stage again. Um, so I think that uh, the point Lorenzo was making is very well taken and you need to kind of put it in that context. I think uh, William Burroughs said, you know, you really can't understand anything without looking at the context. I think Melissa has also made this point within the beatnik uh, period. Right. You know, the, the, something I hadn't thought about until just right now <clears throat> is that at the time I met Myron, this is after the, the analog drug law came in, and, and Myron threw up his hands and quit when that happened. And at that conference, I was one of the few people who was new. Everybody there knew each other from research and past conferences and stuff like that. I was one of the few new guys. And Myron may have been fascinated that somebody that wasn't involved in the 60s, that, you know, uh, an older guy, was still interested in psychedelics. I think I was one of the first people he'd talked to in several years that hadn't been involved in a long time or for a long time that was still interested and, and kind of perked him up a little bit, I guess. I, I, I never, never thought about it, but I'll, I'll give some thought to that now. But I think that might have been part of it. You have a unique um, status, evidently. And coming in kind of new in a, a more mature age wasn't something. So he was, you were kind of a subject, it sounds like, almost. <laughs> Lorenzo, we didn't hear anything you just said. <laughs> Probably just as well. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, in Vietnam, we call him the FNG, the fucking new guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and Melissa made the point about keeping it going, or maybe you did, Lorenzo. I think that was always a vector for these people. You know, what's coming to mind is Kathleen's salons, where even though it was illegal, we kept it alive through these. And then new people would come in. So there was a passing on within generations, too. And by the way, Kathleen's salon was originally formed as the Albert Hoffman Foundation monthly meeting. 
And Sasha and Ann came down to kick off that original meeting and it evolved into Kathleen Salon eventually, but uh, uh, it was originally the Albert Hoffman Foundation uh, monthly meeting. Wow. And it was invitation only when it first began. Yeah, I guess part of the interest too that that you must have um, elicited is that this was disreputable and dangerous knowledge to be around, you know, for, so for somebody that isn't a kid or, you know, a complete fuck up uh, to be coming into that environment uh, for somebody with somebody to lose, in other words, uh, to be coming into that environment, what must've been quite, uh, quite not unique, but certainly special. Well, well it's I- like when I meet somebody today who tells me like that they converted to Christianity, like in midlife, it's like, oh, like you're still joining teams. Interesting. And so to encounter an adult who like hadn't been turned off just by the saturated with paranoia informational environment um, is like, oh, you made it. Interesting. I, I didn't even know we were advertising. I guess the difference is that you don't get high off of a communion wafer. <laughs> true, true, true. There's well, I mean, you're mad. It, it sets you up for that. Like the whole ceremony, like it sort of makes you think that there's going to be like a moment is going to be something that you like baptism is like this communions like this. And, and so like, I learned how to like expect liftoff, um, you know, from communion. And then when I took a mushroom, like that actually went somewhere, but like the communion had taught me how to like center myself, focus on what I'm about to do, take it seriously. And, and nothing ever happened. But when I found something that did make something happen, I was like, Oh, I've been practicing that thing you know, just with the inert, you know, placebo for so long. Right. The placebo for me was effective no matter what any, uh, as far as communion goes, uh, I, I would to this day would get a euphoria natural high off of it for sure. And, you know, in today's world, it seems like a lot of people are acting like they don't have a lot to lose. And I think they might be rudely surprised. I think it also, they might be rudely surprised, number one. Number two, I think that there is an element of risk, no matter how safe the legal environment is when you're working with psychedelics, and that needs to be treated with great care and respect. I mean, you only get so many freebies where you can consume without intention before you get slapped. And, you know, three, the the element of community that came about from the sense of being underground and um, and dangerous is very different from the quality of community that we're encountering right now. I mean, you know, just this morning I sent my, my friend Chris a, um, an ad that, that came to me on Instagram that was advertising, uh, you know, last chance to buy a pre IPO, you know, investment in some company doing uh, psychedelics. And I think it was uh, like, their medicine was called like silly P-S-I-L-L-Y or something stupid like that, you know, and I, I sent it to him with the vomit emoji. And um, but I mean, that's the sense of community where it's all out in the open is that it's um, it's just a very different dynamic. And I guess maybe it's the difference between, um, you know, not to be too highfalutin about it, but it's the difference between, you know, early Gnostic Christianity and the establishment of the church, you know, which also makes me want to put a vomit emoji in front of myself for saying that. But, you know, there is definitely a difference of quality between an oral tradition 
and transmission and, um, you know, person to person exchange of knowledge where, you know, we get to be, you know, in the room with Rio, who was in the room in the medicine with Albert to we get to be sitting in a seminar with 45 spiritual entrepreneurs telling us about how we can microdose to lose weight. It's just a very different, you know, dynamic. Yeah, the underground part was a, a big appeal to me, actually. I don't know why, but I've always been anti-authoritarianism. And so uh, the underground aspect was was important, I think. You had that rebel in you. You just had that turning of get away from the corporate clown ship and turn into the um, experience more and open that mind up again to make the wonderful you, Lorenzo. <laughs> yeah, I spent so much. I spent so much time living inside the little circle that I had to step out once in a while. Yeah. And let's not forget that rebellion was the cultural currency of the progressive mind in the late twentieth century. You know, all of the really great people that were looked up to were, in some way, deviating from, or transgressing from, or rebelling from the establishment. And, um, you know, we currently live in an era that's actually a lot more about consensus building and a lot more about, you know, finding a status quo that, you know, one can identify with. It's, it's very, very, very different. It'll swing again. I mean, there's a lot that's rhyming right now with the, you know, first 20 years of the, of the 20th century. Um, you know, the temperance movements, the censorship movements, uh, the geopolitical unrest, the um, fragmentation of society. I mean, it, what's different, of course, is the telecommunications and scale, but the underlying kind of turbulence um, of society is about can we develop an establishment? You know, young people are more interested in um in 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 being um, the establishment than their parents, you know that'll shift again. But I think where Lorenzo was coming from, that's where that's where the action was. You know, I mean that's where the action is. You know, and you know Ian is a product of the late twentieth century. You know, his books, uh, you know, is a product of um, you know of that of that late twentieth century um, you know culture of the the, the visionary man that goes out to the edge of experience you know that's not a story that is really being told right now now it's the visionary person is bringing the experience to the ipo it's just a very different dynamic there, there was a certain uh, validation if it was illegal and forbidden that uh, you know because we had a total distrust and not that we shouldn't now of the establishment um and, you know, I think that crossed borders, just thinking about also Ildiko's experience, you know, in communist uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, you know, and I think it's too easy to assume that none of this can happen again. Oh, it's going to happen again. You know, to, not to fall off into politics, but I think what we see happening today just shows that... Uh, you know, one person can take us back in, in history, you know, years and years. Robert Reich wrote an editorial over the last couple of days describing that um, maybe America needs a Cold War. And I don't want to go into into politics, but I mean, the, the idea that um, the pendulum will swing is absolute. I think the difference is that 
the anti-authoritarian energy in the late in the mid to late 20th century was about the state and the way the state put restrictions upon liberty whether it was the restrictions that Ildico experienced directly uh, in, in, in growing up in the, in, the, in the Soviet environment or the restrictions that Lorenzo and you and Larry and, and, and your peer group experienced growing up in the Nixon, um, Nixon-Reagan kind of axis of emerging neoliberalism. The difference now is that the establishment seems to be about neoliberalism itself, about the market itself and rebellion has become a flavor within neoliberalism. And that's where you see a lot of younger folks talking about, we need to overthrow capitalism and burn it all down, which is like, that's a nice idea that ain't going to happen. But there are elements of, we need to find a way to liberate ourselves from the programming of this superstructure and find a way to engage with the world in a more mindful and deliberate way. I think that can happen. And I think psychedelics will be a part of that, but um, I'm not investing in any of these companies anytime soon. Yeah. And there was never that side of it. You know, the whole capitalist side just did not exist. Yeah. I mean, Neil Goldsmith is now a taboo person because I guess he had some me too stuff, but one of the things I remember him saying at a horizons conference is um, my generation took acid and quit our jobs and this generation microdoses to get ahead in their jobs that'll shift too i mean that's that's probably overly reductive i mean this was about six years ago when microdosing was first you know coming into the into the into the parlance but um you know definitely there's there's going to need to be a shift i welcome the return of a counterculture i'm sorry larry go ahead no, no, no. I, I'm not even. We may have missed this moment in the last 30 seconds, but um, it reminds me of the theory. Who I always forget who originated it. Somebody might know. He's the scientist that wrote the book that uh, Crichton based Jurassic Park on. He's he's the one that had the idea that if you took a fly in amber, you could, I forget what, anyway, point is he was a serious scientist and I can't remember the name of his book, but the point is, and I'll figure that out, but the point is that uh, he, he had the theory that uh, progress is really only made in times of war. Yes. Technological progress is only really made in the times of war. That's because Charles took that up with there being a, a new cold war. And I, there's a billion examples. I think the most important one was the Egyptians. They lasted for like two or 3,000 years. It didn't change anything. And they didn't invent anything. They didn't do anything. They just did what they did. And, uh, and they were pushed out by the people that had horses or iron, not horses, but iron, whatever it was. And, um, and that had been replaced by corporate wars. Uh, but now we're getting back to a real Cold War, which puts kind of everybody on the same side. I hate what I'm saying, but but Charles said it off that thought. It was yeah, it was a, it was that Robert Reich editorial, and um, and you know, look, I mean, and this is going to be dorky, and I apologize in advance, but I was hoping that COVID was going to be the squid at the end of Watchmen, but maybe Putin is instead. Yeah. I think we've all thought that. 
Yeah, and we don't know where this is going to go. So, and yeah, some, hopefully not. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Someone's, and I know this is mindless. This is just a, a comment, but it's not a sin to me to say that COVID has been somewhat of a blessing. I'm more than fifty percent a blessing, and lives that I've seen change and paths, and that thought they were just going to stay on one path, and and it. It has changed everybody's life in, in a, lot of, a lot of ways. But like you said, like the Cold War, like people are going to die from this disease or they're going to die from the war. You know, it's going to something's going to blow. Right. Well, what what I meant in the in the allusion to Watchmen is that there was this event that occurred in the end of the story that became this galvanizing thing that unified humanity in a direction that was moving away from nuclear ident- uh, annihilationism. And, you know, my hope for COVID was that this would be a thing that pulls people together and allows a, a radical rethinking or, or at least a, 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 a rethinking towards something more sustainable. Radical is far too much to hope for. Uh, but we didn't get there. You know, we became more divided. And um, it's hard to say where this is going to go. But, you know, stuff like the the time change thing, you know, I think that shit's a test boat to see, is it possible to build baby steps of bipartisan consensus and then let's do something else and see if we can get a little bit further a little bit further and and this was i you know i think heather cox richardson wrote about that a little bit this week and uh, i think i saw something in the atlantic about it this week so you know there's something there well and also in bosch's you know lsd in the mind of the universe where his vision is that uh humanity is going to go through a very dark period and you know a lot of humanity will be destroyed and the ecological uh situation will in the end become the overriding uh, force and but he sees in the end that a new form of person a new human will be born out of this and that that kind of corresponds to stuff that, you know, Damer's talked about a lot, uh, both in his public talks and in his private conversations about developing this 500 year runway for humanity. And I think that's that's kind of the key for me is to what extent can those of us alive right now be establishing the the structures, the examples, the life ways that will inspire the people that will be raising the people that will be the leadership of the early 22nd century. Cause we're only, you know, what, you know, 80 years away, 78 years away from the 22nd century. Um, it's not that long. Um, you know, somebody born right now is going to step foot in there, which means that everybody on this call has a role to play in establishing the intellectual template and framework that that person is going to carry forward. We're seeing a lot of 20th century thinking trying to dig its claws into 21st century problems. And I think a lot of our problems are deriving from trying to carry these 20th century ideas about growth and these 20th century ideas about wealth and these 20th century ideas about work and achievement into a 22nd, into a 21st century framework where our population is so much higher. Our, our ease is so much greater. Our automation is so much greater. Um, you know, that, that those ideas that were born out of the post-World War II climate 
just don't port to right now. And if we try to carry them further into the century, we're going to fuck the century more than it's already fucked. And so the pivot that we need to be making in this decade is how do we, you know, stop looking to reclaim this past that only existed for an elite and privileged few to how can we be looking forward to, you know, we don't need to look forward seven generations. We can just look forward two generations and make sure that their life is in the fucking hellscape. Yeah, they're alive right now. They're alive right now. The 22nd century was born in the last couple of years. You know, that, that, I mean, yes, of course, there's a hundred, there's the centennial people that are outliers, but you know, the, the, the people that you're seeing in strollers right now, you know, a good percentage of them are going to be elders at the beginning of the next century. So that means that we're touching that century and we have an obligation to it. Well, does anybody have any, uh, thing they would like to add, uh, at this late hour? We've been here a little while, so uh, uh, again, it's been fascinating. I thought it was going to be kind of boring because I was going to tell my story just because it's the anniversary date, but uh, I got that done, and it turned into a really fascinating conversation. I I appreciate that with all of my heart. So uh, happy anniversary, everybody. We're starting a new year, and uh, it's going to be better than the last. Till next time, hey, keep the old faith and stay high, as if I have to tell you that. So uh, that's a pretty good example of what goes on in our live salons, although I seldom give a little spiel like I did in this one. And we would love to have you join us. I originally began hosting these salons in 2018 for my supporters on Patreon. They're the ones who've been filling in the financial gap from living primarily on Social Security. And my supporters on Patreon have been my saviors these past few years. But when the pandemic arrived and lockdowns began, well, some of my supporters lost their jobs and had even more financial challenges than I did. So in addition to sending the links for each live salon only to my friends on Patreon, I now also post it on the salon's Discord server. As you know, Discord is free and doesn't even require your email address. And the link to our Discord server is at the top of our homepage at psychedelicsalon.com. However, uh, unless I decide to podcast one of those live salons, I only post the recordings on Patreon. And right now there are over 130 of them available for download and listening if you want to hear some of our past hits and future conversations. Well, that's it for today, and until next time, namaste, my friends.